Well, um, it's good to see you this morning, and um, we're going to be obviously in John's gospel, that passage from John 17, and I was thinking about farewell speeches, you know, those kind of those, those final, final words a person gets, whether it's on death row, um, even to this day, people are afforded the opportunity to speak, or in the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie that I saw Friday night, um, there are two gallows scenes where the person about to be executed gets to give a speech, which of course delays the execution and they escape, the formula goes on and on. Or throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, we've got a whole number of farewell parting words. I just started looking at some of them. Um, Jacob to his, his sons, Moses to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, Joshua, uh, the commander of the, the Israelite army, um, King David before he passes away. Here we have the farewell discourse of Jesus in John, starting actually in chapter 13 and goes all the way through chapter 17. This is a long and rich section of the scriptures. And it, this, this particular chapter, chapter 17, has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And as the great high priest, the one who is about to go to the cross and make atonement for our sins, he speaks and he gives such a rich prayer. He prays to the Father um, that as I was preparing this week, Heather, my wife, came by and said, well, how's it going? And I said, not well. It's not, the sermon is not going well. I've got like eight or nine different main themes that are in just these 11 verses. I, I need to narrow this down. And I had to laugh when I came across a comment from John Stott where he pointed out that in the 1600s, um, the, the British leader Oliver Cromwell had a chaplain who once wrote 45 sermons on this chapter and published them in a book that was 450 pages long. And that's just to affirm you that this is a rich text and it's really worth a lot of consideration. But for both your sake and mine, I'm only going to preach one sermon with one point this morning. I'm going to narrow it down to hopefully fit the season that we're in. We are still in Easter until next week when the Feast of Pentecost happens. Um, we are in this sermon series, entering into the newness of life. So if, ever since uh, Holy Week, we've been looking at, because of the resurrection and the invitation to a new kind of life, what's different? What are some of the things about that new life that Jesus is offering? And this morning, I want to look specifically at the security of faith the security that comes with the new life in Christ, that you are secure in his hands. And that's really helpful, I think, for us because there is so much tribulation in the world. There is so much apparent insecurity. In fact, the text started, the reading today started with a contextual clue that says, and when he had finished saying these things. So you have to go back a little bit and see what he had just said. Well, what he said was this, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he lifts his eyes to heaven and begins to pray. He speaks to the Father. Now, it's helpful for us to recognize Jesus didn't need to pray out loud for his sake. He did it for ours, just like he did at Lazarus' grave. In fact, he says there, Father, I know that you always hear me, but I say this for their sake, so that, you will know that, you, that they will know that you sent me. So here we have this prayer Jesus prayed it out loud so that we could see what his prayer life was like, so that we could learn some things, so that our faith could be strengthened, so we could understand. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, says Jesus. 
You know, we've recently seen some more terrorism in Manchester, and if you understand how terrorism works, it's people who are weak, who don't have a lot of worldly power, try to undermine the government or the leaders to sow fear and insecurity into the system. They try and destabilize. And it's a lashing out, and there are some, it's hard to say what the reasons are for it, but you can look at the conditions that are necessary for it to happen. But the point is fear and instability. And I want to suggest to you that there is an ancient terrorist of faith who is the devil, the enemy of God's people. When he realized that he was defeated at Calvary, he went off to make war against God's people. And he still does that today. Through a number of means, he is sowing fear and insecurity into the system. He would like to undermine your faith if you're a believer. So let me give you some examples of what these kind of thoughts might sound like if you are being terrorized by this. Have you ever looked at the world's um, problems and then had the thought, if God's all-powerful, maybe he's just asleep at at the wheel? That is a thought that's straight from hell. It's suggesting that God is not actually in control or that whatever happens is catching him by surprise. Or another thought might be, have you ever wondered if the cross actually paid for your sins? You had this doubt that on that day, you're going to go and stand before the Lord. He's going to go, oh no, not you. That one over there is accepted, but not you. Again, that is straight from the devil. That is from hell. And that is terrorism, spiritual terrorism against you. It is trying to undermine the security that you have in Christ. You are secure if you are a Christian. You can be totally confident and you can reject those lies of the enemy. One of my favorite authors is Dallas Willard. I've mentioned him a number of times. We did a Sunday school class on a book of his a couple of years ago. I keep reading his stuff and I keep coming back to it because it is so rich about the kingdom of God. One of the things that Dallas Willard said was that he said, for the person who has Christ, for the Christian, the the universe is a perfectly safe place to be. You are perfectly safe if you're a Christian in this world. Now, it's helpful to understand that he said that even though he knew he had terminal cancer. He died in 2013, not long after he discovered that he had cancer. He still maintained the idea that the universe is a perfectly safe place to be for him. Now, you have to recognize That's not to say there isn't suffering or tribulation. Jesus just said it. In this world, you will have tribulation. I know many of you are suffering some really hard things. I'm grateful for the prayer cards you turn in and that you share those with us so we can be praying for you. I know that there are real sufferings. But I want you to recognize that Jesus said you should should not fear those who can only kill the body. But you should fear, meaning revere, the one who has power over the physical body as well as the soul. And what Dallas Willard is saying is, in God's hands, your soul is secure in this world. Or as one of his students, James Bryan Smith says, the kingdom of God is never in trouble. Ever. And if you're in the kingdom, you're not in trouble either. So Jesus is never caught off guard. He's never surprised. Even though you might be surprised by what happens in your life, in your family, in your situation, he is not, and he as the good redeemer is going to carry you through it. He will be with you all the way through it. So there's a certain sense of security. It's a perspective thing. If you're thinking big picture kingdom, when these things happen, these tribulations, the person who has this newness of life is secure and is able to go through them no matter how hard they are. It's a perspective thing. John Ortberg, who's a really great 
teacher and tells really good stories, uh, wrote a book called Life-Changing Love, and he tells a story in there of a mom who, during the night, in a, in a really loud thunderstorm, becomes, wakes up and is concerned for her son figuring he'd be terrified. So the mother uh, hurries down the hall to her son's room, and um, right as a big bright flash of lightning hits, um, she enters the room expecting him to be terrified, but to her surprise, he's standing there and looking out the window. And, and he says, I was looking outside, and you'll never guess what happened. God took my picture. See, that's about kingdom perspective. Instead of being terrified that I'm going to be struck down by a bolt of lightning or my house is going to fall in on me or the scary thunder that scares the dog and all that stuff, I, I don't fear that. I recognize God is in charge of this. That's just the flash of his camera. He just took my picture. Right? That's about perspective. That's a bigger perspective and it, it's a certain security. We don't have to be afraid in the midst of these sufferings because of who our God is. Now, I want to look at John 17, and I want to only, we only read the first 11 uh, verses of this chapter. I'm going to look just at two particular aspects of this prayer of Jesus. First, his prayer for himself, and then second, his prayer for the 11 apostles who are with him. So let's go uh, to that first section, and I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to start with verse 5 and work back to verse 1. So verse 5, he says, he prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now I want you to recognize something about Jesus here. Every once in a while in his earthly ministry, the apostles got a glimpse of his glory. He is praying from eternity in this moment. He has stepped back and is praying from the, from the perspective that only God can have. He was there at the beginning because all things were created through him. Talk about something that is secure. He understands way more than we ever will. He's the smartest man to have ever lived. He, is, he was there in the beginning. He will be there forever. He is eternal. And so it's from that perspective that he's praying. That's really helpful for us. It's cosmic in scope, and it reminds us who this is. He's not just a man. He's God. And they got to see this. And then in verse 4, he goes on in his prayer, or actually before, this, before verse 5, he prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, in the context here, he's still part of the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse. It started in the upper room, and it takes him all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's praying all night, and then he'll be betrayed by Judas early at dawn. And so he has not gone to the cross yet. In fact, he's not even been arrested or persecuted yet. He's not, or at least not uh, tortured yet. And so he's praying in the past tense. Why? He is so confident in the Father's will. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. Again, remember who this is that's praying. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. He, he is able to speak from the future, looking ahead to what's happening. He told his followers several times, Understand that the Son of Man is going to be handed over to suffering and death, and then on the third day, he will rise to new life. And so he's able to pray as if it's already accomplished. If you've ever played dominoes where you stack them up and make a, a little obstacle course and tap them down, his three years of earthly ministry was him putting those dominoes in place faithfully, one after another after another. Nope, my time has not yet come. Nope, it's not my time yet. Nope, nope. He's doing signs and wonders. He's healing people. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's revealing the Father to them. 
And now he says the time has come because in that upper room discourse, when Judas goes out to betray him, he knocks the first domino over. And Jesus is able to step back and say, it's finished because he knows what's going to unfold. He has to just walk through it. He's about to be betrayed. He's going to go through the passion. If you were here on Good Friday, you went through it with us as we looked at all the different things that Jesus endured that took him to the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, we saw the resurrection. So Jesus is that confident. He's got an eternal perspective. He's able to understand and trust that all that the Father promised will be accomplished. He is a rock on which we should build our lives. Now back to verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now understand something. He's not some kind of egomaniac wanting to be glorified for his own sake. This is the nature of God, where God is in the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Father sending the Son to do something in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, and he's saying, glorify me so that I might glorify you. It's not for Jesus' sake, it's for the Father's sake. And the Father is eager to glorify him and raise him up. We see a picture of this unconditional self-sacrificing love in the Godhead. This is who our God is. Now let me explain a little bit about glory to you. This is a difficult word. In fact, I looked it up in the Greek uh, dictionary and there's four different definitions that have been used in, in the time in which the Bible was written. So the first one picks up on a Hebrew concept of glory. The Hebrew word kavod, which means heaviness. You know, if you think of the, the bright cloud that would descend upon the tabernacle or in the temple when God went to meet with Moses and then later with David and others. That's the kind of weight of glory we're talking about here. It's a bright, a shining, a splendor, a radiance. A second definition is it's a state of being magnificent or a, a state of being great. It's greatness. Glory is greatness. It's also honor as recognition for performance or for fame. I liked how um, a number of years ago, Chris Tomlin wrote a song and the chorus said, you're the famous one, praising God for being famous. He is famous because of what he's done. And so he is worthy of receiving, receiving honor and recognition. This is all part of the glory that we're talking about. And then the last one is transcendence of a majestic being. The disciples caught a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then they started to catch more and more of a glimpse of that after the resurrection as he had appearances with them. And then, of course, this past Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension. And so that's when, when Jesus ascended in great majesty and transcendence up through the clouds and went back to the Father. So all of this is kind of picked up in this idea of glory. So he's saying, Father, glorify me so that I might glorify you. All these ideas are in there. So that's who, that's who we worship. That's who the Lord is. Now, the Father answered this prayer in a number of different ways even before um, his earthly ministry finished. Think about some of the ways that the Father answered that prayer. He's saying, Father, glorify your Son. Consider this. Three different people confessed him as the Son of God in the midst of the Passion. One was Judas. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And then within 24 hours was back at the temple with the religious leaders and he gave the money back and he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. 
that's a glorification of Jesus. The Father anointed that to happen. So from the lips of the very betrayer to say, he's actually innocent. I'm the one who sinned here. Same thing happens um, with the centurion who stood by guarding at the cross. When Jesus died, he looked up and said, surely this was the Son of God. Again, Jesus being glorified in the midst of this. Two thieves on the crosses on either side of Jesus. One repents of his sin and says, we deserve what we're getting, but this man is innocent. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he is glorified as a king on that cross by a thief. It's, he's recognized. Or how about Pilate's wife? In the night, she has a dream, and she goes to Pilate and says, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered greatly in a dream last night about this. He's innocent. So Pilate, you know, washes his hands and says, I find no guilt in this man, and then, of course, goes on to, to crucify him. But even in that, what's the inscription over Jesus on the cross? It read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews were upset, and they went to him and said, no, no, say, this man says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate goes, what I've written, I've written. And he leaves it up there. Again, the father working through the circumstances to bring glory to the son in all these different ways. And then, of course, when his death actually happens, there's, there's a cosmic shaking, right? Like the whole earth gets dark, the storm clouds, there's a, there's a, a, a bunch of um, tombs that break open and dead people come and walk. I wish we had more of that in the scripture. I want to know some more of that backstory there. Like, where did they go? How long did they live? Did they die the next day? Did they live 30 more years? But I guess we don't need to know, or the Lord would have given it to us. The temple court curtain tears. Huge, big, thick wool curtain rips down the middle. All this was the father answering the son's prayer. And then, of course, the resurrection and the ascension. Again, God the father glorifying the son, the son glorifying the father and revealing him. Now, let's look at his, his, um, his prayer for the 11, because they're the ones who are in this tribulation, and they're the ones whose faith is um, found to be acceptable. Jesus is accepting them here, and, so, and he's commending them back to the Father. So look at verse 6. In verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What a beautiful name it is. We just sang that. Jesus revealed not only the physical name, Yahweh, which is the Hebrew verb for I am. Remember he told Moses that's his name, I am. So seven times in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am uh, the, um, the bread. Uh, he says all these I am statements. And not only does he show that he's God, but he shows something specific about God through each one of those. And as he said to Philip the week before, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he has revealed the name of God, meaning his, his character, who he is. He's done this, and he says in, in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So what we have to recognize here is that some of these Jews, I mean, the, the apostles were all they were Jewish men that grew up in synagogue, reading the scrolls, saying the prayers, going through the Hebrew liturgy. They belonged to the Father. Some of the Jews did not. And Jesus has a confrontation with some of them in John chapter 8, who are, they're claiming to be of Abraham. He says, if you were of Abraham, you would receive me, but you're of your father, the devil, and you're doing his works. See, these ones, these 11 apostles, were of the Father. They were, they were oriented towards God. And so when the Messiah came, they were eager to receive him. And then they went with them, with Jesus. 
So for three years, Jesus revealed more of the Father to them, and now he's saying, I've kept them in your name, and now I'm giving them back to you. And then he prays for them a little further. Um, In verse 3, to back up a bit, how do they have eternal life? Well, he tells us very clearly, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's where eternal life is. And he points that out. These men have eternal life because they now know the Father through the Son. Now, I think for us, when we're talking about security of faith, assurance, I think verse 8 is key. Verse 8 says, he prays, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here is the key attribute of a true disciple. It is receptivity. Jesus came to all, but not all received him. In fact, that's how John starts his gospel out in John chapter 1. It says that the true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, there's that receptivity, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These 11 apostles had a receptive spirit to God. Now I ask you, how's your spirit on that? Would you say that you are receptive to God? He's constantly speaking. He's constantly drawing us in. He's working in all those circumstances and tribulations of our lives. Are you receptive to what he's doing? Do you have this key attribute of a disciple? The second attribute mentioned here then is faith. Not only receptivity, but then belief. And they received Jesus and then they believed that he was sent from God. Now to understand what belief is, it's not just mental assent. I use this illustration often and I stole it from Andy Stanley, but it's still helpful. Talk about a chair. Have you ever seen somebody, assuming they don't get hurt, it's kind of funny, but have you ever seen somebody sit down on a chair that is not structurally stable and it breaks and they fall? It's, it's, come on, it's, it is funny. <laughs> if, they're not, if they don't get hurt, because it's kind of embarrassing. But see, here's the point. The person doesn't sit down on a chair thinking it's going to break. They are fully confident that chair will sustain them, and it doesn't. You see, it's not their faith up in their head that matters. It's the object in which they're placing it. So the other person who sees the old rickety rocking chair and is like really timid and like slowly sits down in it, but then it holds them because it's, it's structurally sound, Again, it's not, the, it's not the intensity of their faith, it's the, the security of the object on which they are placing their trust. So that's what these 11 apostles have. They've been receptive to God, and they have come to believe that Jesus was sent from him. And so he's, he's, he's saying they're yours. They're saved. They're in good hands. Now we know we know that they believed because of their obedience. We saw it all through three years. You know, when, when people abandoned Jesus, they hung in there. He said some hard teachings. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Oh, and my, in case you won't think that that's like loose language, then he says, and my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And the people go, this is a hard teaching. And many abandoned him, it says. But these ones, they said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, they've received him and they've trusted in him. They've placed their trust in him. And so they're secure. They're in good hands. I like how St. Anselm of Canterbury put it. We have faith seeking understanding. 
Are you the kind of person who has to have it all figured out before you're going to trust it? Because you'll never get it all figured out. You'll stand on the outside of Christianity looking in and you'll let your questions and your hesitations keep you from trusting. What we have to do is we have to trust. We have to receive him and then trust him. And then what happens is the Lord gives more. As, you, as you're obedient to what he's given you already, then he gives you more. And you keep learning and you keep growing. Your understanding increases as you exercise it. Faith seeking further understanding. That's what these apostles do. And they're ignorant of so many things. Some not of their own fault. I mean, Jesus says earlier, uh, back in 16, verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, which you'll hear about next week at Pentecost, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you. So they didn't have all the answers. They had enough, and they were willing to act on what they had. And so they were, they were secure. They had lots of ignorance and lots of weakness. But see, I want to I suggest to you that Jesus is a rock on which you can build your life. And if you enter into this newness of life, you have a kind of security that will take you through whatever tribulation will come your way, whatever it is. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a sudden job loss, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a lightning bolt that actually does hit your house. I mean, these things happen. And the thing is that you are secure if you are with Christ. He will carry you right through that. So I want to encourage you, by way of application, I want you to start rewiring yourself by telling yourself a different story than what the enemy, that terrorist, that ancient terrorist would tell you. I want you to rewire yourself by saying things like this. The kingdom of God is not in trouble. Jesus is the smartest man to have ever lived. He knew this would happen before it happened. He's with me. The universe is a perfectly safe place for my soul. You start telling yourself those truths and your security, your, your sense of that security will increase. Those are all true statements. And if you're in Christ, you are totally secure. That's part of this newness of life. That's why he came, that's why he died, and that's why he rose. So would you come with me in prayer now? Lord, each one of us has different struggles. Father, we, we lay them now before the cross of Jesus. We come and ask you to help us. Would you show us the lies we've believed and help us to embrace an entirely different narrative? Father, you are trustworthy and you never let go of us. Lord, for anyone in here who has never trusted in you, I pray for the gift of new life, that they would lay down their life before you and say, you are the Lord and that you would meet them there. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.